before you today. It certainly has been wet, but the Lord has blessed us with a safe arrival uh, this evening. When I say these two words, are there any more precious to us? The first word is faith. The second word is family. Faith and family. Certainly two precious words. I want us to think about parenting this evening. I want us to think about grandparenting. And I want us to turn back to Abraham to see his faith and his faith along with his family. I want us to start in Genesis 18 and verse 19 as an introduction. God chose Abraham. Why? God chose Abraham, it says in Genesis 18, 19. But why? First of all, because he commanded his children after him to keep the way of the Lord. First reason God chose him. He commanded his children after him to keep the way of the Lord. Abraham could see his obligation before God. That he had a duty to charge and to teach his children. It reminds us of Ephesians 6 and verse 4 where Paul says, And you fathers, and you fathers, and you fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, in the teaching, instruction, and discipline of the Lord is what Paul says. One of my favorite to compare there is Psalm number 127, which is only five verses long. Psalm number 127, the first verse says, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain who build it. We're but agents in the hands of our God. He wants to instruct our children, but He intends to instruct our children through us. Through primarily the fathers, and of course also the mothers. But ye fathers, ye fathers. Psalm 127 verse 3 says that children are an heritage of the Lord. The fruit of the womb. The fruit of the womb is His reward. Children are a gift. Fathers, we recognize that the greatest blessing we have beyond the salvation that the Lord has given us and the Son that He has given us in our behalf and the Bible that He has provided for us, one of the great blessings that the Lord has provided to us is is our family, our wives, our children. And it says there in Psalm 127 that... Children are like arrows in the hand of a mighty man. As arrows are, are in the hand of a mighty man, what does he do with his arrows? He shoots them toward a single target. So children are in our hands. And there's a particular goal that God has in mind for our children, basically for them to serve God and then come to heaven and live with Him forever and ever. And that's our goal and that's our That's our job, that's our responsibility, that's our obligation. Now, I want us to think about the fact that a second reason that God chose Abraham, going back to Genesis 18, 19, not only because he commanded his children to keep the way of the Lord, but also he instructed them 
in both righteousness and justice. Righteousness and justice. You might say this is a cause, a cause of Abraham. Okay. Yet the first idea there is obligation of Abraham to his children. The second is that Abraham was to enlist his children in the, in the Lord's cause. Okay. The Lord had a means. He had a motive. He had a reason for choosing Abraham. He had a cause, a movement upon this earth. And that is for Abraham and his seed to bring righteousness and justice, justice, the righteousness of God, the justice of God into the lives of those around them. And we have a cause today, of course, and it's the Lord's cause to seek and save that which is lost. And we are to enlist our children in that same cause. So looking at Genesis 18, 19, notice that God chose Abraham because he would command his children to keep the way of the Lord and that he would enlist them to do righteousness and justice. And then toward the end of the verse it says, so that God may bring upon Abraham all that he has promised. Of course, ultimately the promise through Abraham was to bring Jesus into the world, the gospel uh, into the world. And even today, we have promises for our children from God that need to be protected. The promise that God has for all of us to be forgiven of our sins. The promise that the Lord will be with us. His presence will be with us. The promise that the Lord will provide for us. The promise that the Lord will create a home for us in heaven throughout all eternity. For us, we need those promises uh, to be not only brought into our lives and believed, but also passed on to our children. Now, a question for us in regard to Abraham is, what are some of the big things he did to help Genesis 18, 19 take place into the lives of his children? And I want to suggest three things and probably only mention two, only really... Spend time on two and maybe just mention the third. All right. The first thing that Abraham really did, the big thing he did, if you turn over to Genesis 24, you'll notice that he involved himself in the selection of a wife uh, for Isaac. You notice this in Genesis 24 beginning in verse number one. Abraham is going to talk to his servant. One of his main servants, and he's going to have that servant to go find a wife for Isaac. Not among the Canaanites, but going back to our own country, unto our own people. Pick up with me in Genesis 24, verse 2. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but that you will go to my country and that you will go to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac uh, there. There. And then in verse 10, we find the servant doing just that. Verse 10 says, The servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia and to the city of Nahor. And that's when he's going to eventually find Rebekah for Isaac. 
Now notice here, this is a big deal to Abraham. I think it's a big deal to God. Notice that he chose the main servant in the house to get this done. Notice they they had this little custom. Take your hand and put it under my thigh. And you swear to me that you will do exactly as I tell you. And then notice in verses 6 and 7 here, another thing that makes it a big deal. Abraham said to the servant, see to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send, notice this, he will send his angel before you and you will take a wife for my son from there. It's a big deal. Okay. Notice he, took, he chose his main servant. They did this thing with the, the hand under the thigh. And then he said, an angel from the Lord will guide you on this journey. It's a big deal. Big deal. Now, it's a scary thought for any of us parents to think about our children taking a, a husband or a wife. For life. It's, it's a scary deal. And I'm sure it was the same for Abraham as he thought about the situation for Isaac. It's a scary deal. Who will they marry? We know this is part of the big decision in life. I used to say it like this. I don't think I was correct in it. I used to say three big decisions okay, in life. Uh, obeying the Lord who you will marry, and what will you do to get money. Okay. But I think there's one big decision in life, and that is to submit to the Lord, and this selection of a mate is part of that big decision, as is what you choose to do to get an income. It's part of that big decision. It's all about the Lord. It's all about God, how we're going to work it out to serve Him. Okay. Now, the modern trend seems to be that mom and dad need to, need to play a hands-off policy here. That they need to lay off. They need to back away. They don't need to meddle in who Johnny or Susie uh, gets for a while. They need to let Johnny or Susie find their own love. you know. And they need to back off. They don't need to be busybodies in that decision. Nothing could be further from the truth. That is not the biblical model. Just think about that. You are investing all of this time and money, which you're glad to do in your children's lives. And then when it comes down to one of the biggest decisions in your life, you're just going to back off? You're not going to say anything? You're just going to endorse any old person that comes through that door? I think not at all. In fact, it is strongly suggested here okay, that we, in following a similar, similar pattern of Abraham here, that we insist that it become imperative in our minds that our children marry in the faith. That our children marry in the faith. Not that our children marry in a faith. Not that our children marry someone of the same faith, but that our children marry in the faith, the faith. 
You see, Acts 6 verse 7 says, A great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. There's only one faith okay, coming uh, from the Lord Jesus. Only one faith. Paul preached the faith, Galatians 1, 23, 23, and that's the, the faith that we are to have center uh, in our lives. Strongly suggested here that everyone marry in the faith. The faith. I know preachers who have a long-standing policy, gospel preachers, that they will not marry two individuals who are not already uh, sincere, devoted Christians. Okay. They, they will not marry two unless they are two people. And let me give you four reasons why this is a great suggestion, if not a command. Okay. First, of all, first of all, consider the examples in the Bible. You have this example of Abraham and the servant here and Isaac and uh, Rebekah. But think about the other examples that you have. We studied this summer Aquila and Priscilla, two Christians working so very hard uh, in the uh, interest of the Lord. Notice who uh, the Lord chose to bring John the Baptist into the world. Uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth, Luke 1, 5, and 6, and it says they were both righteous before the Lord. We can name others. What about Philip over in Acts 21? Philip and his wife brought up four daughters who were able to be uh, teachers in the Lord's cause. Okay. Didn't seem like they wore out about that. They were just dedicated to that. And what about the household of Stephan as mentioned over in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 15. The entire family was addicted to the ministry of the Lord, the ministry of the saints. In other words, the, the ministry that saints ought to take up and do in their lives. The entire household was addicted to it. So examples uh, point in that direction. And so do different passages. What about 1 Corinthians 7, 37, where Paul says, Marry only in the Lord. It's hard to get around that statement. Marry only in uh, the Lord. Amos 3, verse 3 says, Can two walk together except they be agreed? What more important Agreement needs to be made between two than who we are going to have as our God uh, in our home. What about what 1 Corinthians 15, 33 says, the evil companionships corrupt good morals. How many times have we seen it happen where one of our own marries outside the faith, hoping, hoping that... Um, Righteous influence will be exerted upon the other, but oftentimes it's simply not uh, the case. But nonetheless, notice the examples, notice the passages uh, that are mentioned uh, in the Bible. And notice, if you will, a third reason that this is strongly suggested is think about just common sense. Common sense. What is the goal anyway? What is the goal anyway? Is it not get to get to heaven? Is it not to be fully engrossed and absorbed in the purpose of God? Is it not to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Okay. Is the goal not to go to heaven? Is the goal not to take others with you to heaven? Is the goal not to make your family a team like Aquila and Priscilla and like Zacharias and Elizabeth and like Stephanus and Philip and others? Is it 
is the goal not to make our family a, a powerful team, a force for the Lord? Common sense. You know, in Christian marriages, we would all fully submit that even in Christian marriages, there are difficulties. It's not all smooth sailing in the best of situations. How much the more then? How much the more when you've got opposite uh, views of God uh, inside one household? Just common sense. One preacher suggested to ask a young lady who was considering marrying outside the faith. He said, ask her, who's going to lead the prayers in the house? How many prayers are going to be led in the house? Put yourself there in your future marriage on Sunday morning. Put yourself there on Sunday afternoon. What's going to happen when you go on vacation and all of a sudden it's the Lord's Day or it's Bible class hour? What's going to happen uh, then? Who's going to read the scripture with your children? Okay. Think about some of those questions. So common sense. And then the main thing here. So reason number one, examples. Reason number two, passages. Reason number three is common sense. But reason number four is, and this, this really connects to Abraham. I think this is what Abraham had on mind. Abraham did not want the influence of the world in the future home of Isaac and whoever, Isaac and Rebekah. He didn't want the Canaanite influence in the home of, of Isaac and Rebekah. He didn't want the influence of the world in that future home. So he stepped in. He got involved. He got involved. You know, Abraham was an older guy whenever Isaac came along. Okay. Now Isaac here is all grown up. But he can keep Abraham is still an older guy, but even at an older age, he's still involved, still interested, still seeking to impact the future of his children as he ought to do. He didn't want, we don't want that either. We don't want the influence of the world in our children's hearts and lives. We know that we're not to be conformed to this world, Romans 12, verse 2. Let me take a moment here and just quickly review what we mean by the world. Okay, Just quickly review. What we mean by the world is when, when you choose flesh over spirit. That's what we mean by the world. When you choose flesh over the spirit. 1 Peter 2, 11 says that Fleshly lust war against the soul. Okay. When you choose flesh over spirit. When you choose uh, time over eternity, that's worldliness. That's worldliness. When there's an emphasis on right now and not then, uh, that's worldliness. James reminds us, you know, in James 4, 13 and 14, what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Psalm 90 verse 10 through 12 teaches us to number our days so that we may be able to apply our hearts uh, to wisdom. And then worldliness is also when you choose the outward person over the inward person. 2 Corinthians 4 16 talks about both. The outward person is decaying but the inward man can be renewed day by day. Someone has suggested that there are that Americans spend $22 billion a year in cosmetics. Cosmetics. 
That's, that's unbelievable almost. There's a lot of emphasis on the outward person. That's one thing when you're looking for a mate. What is their emphasis? If it's on the outward person, you run. And I mean not walk, but run away. Run away. Just can't have that. Can't have that at all. And then worldliness is when there's more emphasis on this world than on that which is to come. Paul had a buddy named Demas, 2 Timothy 4 verse 10, who left the faith because he loved this present world. Present world. Worldliness is when there's more emphasis on the present world than there is on that which is to come. And worldliness is when there's more emphasis when you choose self, yourself, over, uh, over God. Even when you choose self and others over God. As we mentioned a moment ago, Mark 12 verse 30 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He comes first. He can, before, before, and the order here is important. Because after that it says love your neighbor as yourself. But first, your first obligation is what would God have to say to me? What would God have to say to me? Your first obligation is to God. And then your obligation is to your neighbor. If you'll go back and notice it, the Ten Commandments are set up in the same way. The first few commandments dealing with your relationship personally to God, and then the latter commandments dealing with your relationship with other people. God comes first. He comes first. So worldliness is when self is chosen over God. And so notice that Abraham's faith toward his family involved his being involved in the selection of Isaac's wife. Staying right here in Genesis 24, notice a second way, a second big rock, if you will, that Abraham put in his boss. A second big thing Abraham did was he made sure that his faith impacted, made its mark on others beside, besides his own household. He made sure that he reached out with his faith to others besides his own household. Besides his own household. How else do you, do you explain his servant here? His servant here in Genesis 24. We, we use the phrase sometimes, in lockstep. Well, the servant is in lockstep. He's on the... He's on the same page as Abraham, not just in strategy, but in faith as well. Notice the servant's faith, if you will. Notice the servant's faith. As the servant is on his way to do this huge duty uh, for Abraham and Isaac. Notice verse 12. Notice the servant's prayer. Notice the servant's prayer in uh, Genesis 24, uh, verse uh, 12. He says, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. But notice his prayer. Notice his prayer. And then later in the chapter, as it appears to him that the Lord has led him to the person he needs to be uh, led to. Notice how he worships God. The servant worships God. It says in verse 26, Genesis 24, 26, it says, The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love, nor has he forsaken his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, 
the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. How do you explain that except that Abraham's faith had made its mark not just on his children, but also on others associated with them in life? Our faith must make its mark in life. You know this. I think about 2 Timothy 1, 4 and 5 as Paul tells Timothy that he remembers Timothy in his prayers often. He remembers when Timothy's having a tough time. He remembers his prayers. But he especially remembers 2 Timothy 1, verse 5. The, the unfeigned faith that dwelt first in um, his grandmother Lois and in his mother Eunice. And he said, I'm persuaded, Timothy, this unfeigned faith is found in you as well. Notice how the faith of grandma and mom had had an impact. It made its mark uh, in the life of Timothy. Now it's not that Timothy was going to ride the coattails of the faith of his mother all the way into heaven. No. But all of us need somebody else's faith oftentimes to get us started. To get us a boot, give us a boost. To head us in the right direction so that we can develop our own faith uh, in God. Faith must make its mark. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 8, Paul speaks of the Christians in Thessalonica, how their faith had gone out, had made itself known throughout the entire world. They had not kept it to themselves. When Jesus was in that house, uh, we read about in Mark 2, 1 through 10, where it was so crowded that that they brought the man on the stretcher down through the roof. It says, Jesus looked at the man, he looked at the men carrying that man on the stretcher, and it says he saw their faith. He saw their faith. Faith is something that must, must be active. It is something that must make its mark. It's something that must leave its mark. It must make an impact, not only in the lives of those that are closest to us, but also in the lives of others around us, And I consider that to be huge in bringing up children. Our children must see us reaching out because they hear the gospel. They hear church. They listen at church. They see the Bible. They hear the prayers. They're involved in the songs. They know the gospel is meant to go out into the world, but they only see us reaching into our own homes, our own close associates and not out to the world beyond our own, the borders of our own household, our own lives, then they're going to see a difference there. They're going to see, they're going to see some confusion. They're going to, they're going to see some inconsistencies uh, there. I think that is just huge. And this is something that played a huge part in the uh, faith of Abraham. And I trust it made a great impact upon Isaac and all the servants of the household as well, what can we do to wield a great influence in the lives of our children? To remember this, that our faith must make its mark everywhere. All those around us must see Jesus living in us. But also to remember this, it's not so much what we do, but it is a lot about who we are, who we are. If we are right before God, then we will do the right things. 
But consider this. Other than God himself, probably nobody else on earth knows us better than our, than our, our wives and our children. And if they see us doing, saying, doing things outwardly, but then they see that that's not really who we are deep down, then that's going to bring a souring effect, impact upon their faith. So Abraham's faith had made its mark, and it needs to make a mark upon us. And we need to make sure our, our faith makes a mark, not only on our children, of course, but on everybody uh, who may be around us. Think about, as we conclude here in just a second, think about at the end of the chapter, think about Isaac's role. Isaac comes upon the scene finally, about verses 62 to 67. And Isaac has a nice reception to what has taken place. I believe this speaks to his heart. Okay. When the servant brings Rebekah to him, he doesn't question it, but he brings her and they get married. And he brings her into his tent and he receives what was obviously a plan of the Lord. Contrast this to over in Judges 14, 1 through 4, and consider Samson and what he said to his parents. Samson saw a girl among the Philistines. He said to his parents, get me this girl for me to marry. And his, and his parents tried to reason with him. Well, what about one of the girls of, of your own people, of your own kindred? He came back and said, no, you get me this girl that I want. Boy, that, that just, what does that scream for? That Samson needs to stand in a corner, doesn't he? More than that, something's gone wrong with Samson. But notice the reception of Isaac. What a contrast that is. In fact, you pick up in verse 62, 63, Isaac himself is out in the field meditating, most likely praying to the God, and most likely praying about this same event that is happening in his life. It's not wrong for parents to have some intentions, even as their children get older, maybe especially as their children get older. Have you ever noticed what happens when we really, really intend to do something? What happens? It usually takes place, doesn't it? I mean, think about your vacations. If you, if you say, well, we're going to go on this, we're going to go here. Most of you, I've been observing now, most of you make that happen. Okay. Same thing with, with what you like to play with, your recreation. If you like something, you like your... Your playtime, you usually make that happen. Same thing with your purchases and your buying. You usually, what you want, you have that intention, you make that happen. Why cannot we be just as passionate and intensive about our children's future? Because so much 
literally eternity hangs in the balances. Just mention this third thing that Abraham did. I think there are three big rocks. Abraham, faith, and family. First, involved in the selection of his of Isaac's future wife. Secondly, uh, his faith went beyond his own household. And thirdly, how his faith responded to the big test of God. And we won't take the time. You're very thankful for that, I know. But reading through Genesis 22, you remember what God asked Abraham to do with Isaac. It's a beautiful story. But Abraham was able to respond in faith to the extreme test that God put before him. I tell you what, those are memories that Isaac would have forever. How Abraham's faith went toward the selection of his wife, went toward beyond the borders of his household, and went toward and remained faithful even when God severely tested him. And we leave that with ourselves as parents to learn from the faith of Abraham. We're going to sing a song of encouragement now here in just a second. And hopefully these two words are still precious to all of us, faith and family. How can we make the faith in God, the faith of God, grow and be more impactful in our families? Certainly by looking at great examples like Abraham, we can do that. We certainly can. Can we assist you with anything concerning the faith? Are you ready to put Jesus on in baptism? Perhaps having wandered away, you're ready now to come back home to him. The invitation is yours. Please come right now as we stand together, as we sing, Brother James.